Hello and welcome to Getting Goosebumps, the weekly podcast exploring the business of storytelling, where I interview many of the world's greatest marketers and storytellers to share their insights and ideas of how to put emotion into marketing. Hello and welcome to another show. I'm your host, Brian Adams, and this week I'm talking to Kevin Cruz. Kevin is a New York Times best-selling author, he's a world's top social media influencer, and he's a leading authority on employer engagement and employer value proposition. So this week we talk about the stories we tell our teams and how to use effective storytelling to attract and retain top talent within your business. We look at how to emotionally connect with people and keep the spark in your team relationships. Well, hello, everybody. I'm extremely pleased to be joined by a New York Times best-selling author and serial entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Hello, Kevin. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for the opportunity, Brian. Happy to be on the show. It's an absolute, absolute pleasure. And Kevin, you're, you're a leading expert specializing in employment engage, in engagement and leadership. Um, and that's, you know, you're widely recognized for that. So, um, this isn't something you've just studied and written about, though, is it? You've, you've built and sold uh, a number of multi-million dollar businesses. So um, I, I guess that qualifies you to talk about this with gusto <laughs> and confidence. Uh, can we start there, Kevin? Can you give us a brief insight into um, what's brought you up to this point in your career? Yeah, thanks, Brian. And, and I chuckle because that's often when people hear that I, I write and speak a lot about, you know, this sort of funny term, employee engagement and engagement. Uh, unless you've got an HR background, a lot of people don't even really understand, you know, what what that means. And you know, people will assume that I come from the HR world, or that I'm a an engagement consultant, or a, a professor in, in yeah, organizational some development. Sort of academic, yeah, right. And, and I'm not. I mean, I you know, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, for the last 25 years, I've started and and uh, you know, built several companies, uh, some of which have have been spectacular failures, but fortunately, <laughs> many of have done quite well. And when I sold my last company, which is now, I guess, about five years ago, um, what I, what I really, when I look back at the failures early on, you know, when I was young and dumb in my twenties versus the companies that, you know, took off pretty quickly, much later uh, in, in my career, there were several factors, but the big one was when it, it boiled down to leadership and talent and engagement. You know, when I was young and dumb, I thought I was always the smartest guy in the room. You know, I thought I, as the the founder and the leader, could make all those decisions, and I was you know really micromanaging on all kinds of levels. And those businesses failed. And you know, as I as I tried to take lessons, uh, I'm a slow learner, but I do learn. You know, I, I started to realize that. Many of the most successful entrepreneurs I saw were were really doing one or two things well, but then they were hiring great people and kind of leaving them alone. And as I started to take more of a hands-off approach and invest more time and energy into just hiring great people, well, that business did pretty well. And I sold it and said, oh, okay, now I get how it's done. And I spent, you know, the next one even more time just trying to be a, a good leader and supporting the people rather than directing the work. That company did even better. And it got to the point where with my last company, I mean, <laughs> it sounds funny, but I mean, I did very little work. I mean, almost my entire <laughs> job was to, you know, beat the drum around mission and vision and to find and recruit the best people I could and then just support them whenever I could. But, you know, instead of me weighing in on every little marketing decision. You know, I hired a great head of marketing and, you know, left her alone. Uh, instead of me looking over the shoulder of my graphic designers and telling them, you know, that button is too blue or ridiculous things like that, I hired amazing designers and left them alone. And that, you know, business did phenomenally well, you know, and, and it really comes down to, I mean, you know, you can have the best strategy, but if you have a horrible team, it will never get executed on. And yet, I could be completely wrong on the strategy. I could be wrong on everything, but if I get the talent part right, they'll figure it out. They won't let me fail. They won't let us fail. And so, you know, after selling the last business, I really thought about this and said, you know, part of the problem with engagement and a lot of the how do you lead for employee engagement is that it is coming from the HR world and God bless them, but they're writing for fellow peers, HR professionals. I wanted to write and speak in a way that would communicate to 
startup CEOs and business professionals and frontline leaders and say, hey, listen, forget about all this HR jargon. Let's talk about what you really want. You know, how do you get people to show up a little earlier and stay a little later? How do you get them to make fewer mistakes? How do you get, how do you release all this discretionary effort from every person on your team and build massive loyalty? And that gets their attention. And then I talk about leadership engagement in that context and really just share, as I just have started, you know, back when I was doing it all wrong and got horrible results. And then when I finally started to uncover what it takes to to lead for engagement, and all of a sudden, you know, the businesses took off. So that's how I kind of came about to to focusing on this topic for the last several years. Wow. <laughs> so, okay. So I'm going to oversimplify and say, so hmm, you you know a little bit about leadership, then, Kevin. <laughs> that's um, that's that's brilliant. That's a really good insight. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess there's going to be some entrepreneurs listening to this. Um, who are really jealous and a little bit annoyed with themselves because they're working really, really hard every day, you know, um, and they're probably doing that thing that you're talking about in terms of micromanaging. Um, and the the interesting thing from um, an HR perspective is is I think a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake of, of thinking about HR as, oh, God, that thing that they need when they the business grows up a little bit, now we need an HR department to look after people problems right um and what's interesting is you're approaching hr after being a successful entrepreneur recognizing the value and the potential of unleashing the uh, potential of your people i guess um so what do you think are, are some of the, the biggest differences between a common perception of hr and the value that you see given your experience yeah, and Brian, you know this is a hot topic in uh, in HR circles. In fact, I think just recently, the last couple issues of Harvard Business Review, uh, they've been talking about. Some people are calling for you know it's time to split HR because there's the HR that you said that you know people you, when, when that when that executive from HR knocks on your door, your heart sinks. Like it's not usually a good thing. Right? So HR is viewed by many entrepreneurs as you know okay, we're over fifty people. We need someone to deal with payroll and benefits and the paperwork. And if we have to fire somebody, we need to do it right so we don't get sued. You know, all the administrative stuff or the negative aspects of it. But to me, I mean, HR really is all about talent. If you're doing HR right, and this means both if you're an HR professional, the way you want to be positioning yourself internally, the way you want to be positioning HR internally is not about processes and what happens on a negative day. It's all about the talent. And we know that business is all about the talent. So HR strategically really should be one of the most important departments in a, in a company. So even a small business, I don't want people to think this is just big company stuff. I mean, you know, when I had a 50 person company, my HR person was the one that was helping me to implement my strategy, meaning I would say, listen, we're going to double our size next year. But to do that, I need you to find me two amazing salespeople. You know, I need you to find me four amazing program managers. So it, it starts with the recruiting. It starts with the interviewing, uh, it, the, the onboarding. So all of these people are hitting the ground running. And then maintaining engagement, which has to do with surveys and then, you know, certain processes uh, to take in place. So, I mean, HR really should be a strategic growth partner when it comes to talent. And HR needs to work hand in hand with the head of sales, the head of marketing, the head of the company to really craft, you know, so what what is our value proposition? Mm, you know, how absolutely. are we going to attract not just the active job seekers, you know, the best people out there generally, you know, they're not working on their resume and, and browsing the job ads. On yeah, them. they're just busy being great, right? They're, they're busy being great. So how do you come up with a message and a story that's going to capture their attention, break through all those other recruiting offer, or offers that they're getting, and, and then compel them to leave and join join your team, you know, to join your adventure? That, to me, is the real opportunity for oh. each Absolutely. And, you know, I want to delve into the parallels between um, and the synergy between an HR department and marketing a little bit later. Um, but I want to stay on the topic of um, of talent from a leadership point of view, just just for a second, Kevin, because um, 
I'm really interested to get your insight on this. I've had the pleasure of talking to many influencers and really well-known marketers over the last few weeks, talking about storytelling from the perspective of engaging with their customers. Now, give us your insights into how that, how those, all of those things apply for, from a leadership point of view to communicate well with your team. Just how important is storytelling internally? Yeah, I, <laughs> Brian, I am, I am a nut about this now. So <laughs> I am such a believer in storytelling. Now, remember, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I'm not a marketer. I'm not, you know, by 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 training, I don't write fiction books by training. And yet, for for years now, I mean, for decades, the 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 single thing I studied more than any other thing, more than marketing, more than accounting, more than than coding, more than experience design is storytelling. Wow. Because okay. to me, that is the superpower that no matter what you're going to be doing, you know, whether you're trying to get customers, get employees, get investors, uh, communicate a message, give a great speech. It, it, so I'm such a nut about this, Brian, that, you know, I mean, I've probably read 24 books on storytelling and script writing from the classics like, uh, you know, McGee's on story to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey work. Um, I even went to something called thriller fest in New York city, which is an annual conference of thriller writers so that I could meet, uh, like, uh, um, Lee child, who's the author of all the Jack Reacher novels. I, I met him one-on-one and picked his brain. How do you create an amazing story? How do you create a page turner that keeps people hooked to the end? And, you know, something that he told me immediately changed. Every article that I write for Forbes, I use uh, a storytelling technique that, that Lee Child taught me. Every speech I gave ever since I spoke to, to Lee Child has influenced me. Uh, 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 my my marketing positioning for the books and other things I'm doing. So I am such a nut about storytelling. I think it affects every single thing you're doing. It, 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 storytelling to me is the ultimate weapon for persuasion, for influence, for attention. So no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're selling, storytelling has a role. And, and Brian, I just got so geeked out on that. I don't even remember the specific question you asked me, but <laughs> no. that's how, how passionate I am about the subject for every aspect of what you're trying to do. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm actually going on a, a Robert McGee um, worked a two-day workshop in London in a few weeks, and I'm so excited to do oh, it. Oh, brilliant. For exactly the same reason, you know, and I, I think um, part of it is about storytelling for business, but there's a day, I think it's just called genre, which is for people writing for TV, and I'll probably get just as much value out of that because, it, well, it's it's all relevant, right? But, um, it's all relevant, yeah. You know, and I... Again, I'm looking. I'm, I'm speaking to directors at Pixar and writers from Netflix and stand-up comedians, other professional storytellers, just to find out what the you know what what is their magic, what's their recipe, because you know I think it it, it really is a huge um, skill set that's that's largely overlooked and, and possibly undervalued from a leadership point of view, but. Um, when you're communicating with um, with a, a team, Kevin, and when you're coaching, mentoring, and teaching other leaders to speak to their team, right. I guess the value of a story allows allows you to explain the value of an individual and what they bring to an organization within the context. Because sometimes, understand the context of what you're being asked to do. Um, you know, the penny drops. You understand the wider value. You know. What, how, how do you use that particular device to make the penny drop or add value to, a, to a, a wider team or an individual within an organization? And can you think of any examples that really illustrate the point? Yeah, well, I, I, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to think of the stories themselves, but you're absolutely right. So, for example, you know, something I always tell my friends who are in leadership positions, and it is a part of how you engage uh, people. You know, so nothing communicates, nothing captures attention like a story. I mean, you know, some of the most powerful words are, you know, once upon a time or let me tell you a story. And so for leaders, First of all, company founders, especially, you know, you've you've you have a chance to um, uh, to impact everyone. You again, whether it's investor, employee, customer, 
with sort of your origin story, you know, the, the, you know, where did this all come from? Why did you start this company, you know, this group, this team? And, um, you know, more casually, I think a lot of people call it the origin story. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to call it, uh, you know, the, the zero to hero story. If, uh, uh, if you're a part of this story, but you know, it's telling people in a way that they're going to, it's going to suck them in emotionally and then anchor it, you know, why does your company exist? You know, what's it all about? You know, what are you trying to accomplish? And for a lot of founders and a lot of entrepreneurs, it really is a real story. You know, the day that they were frustrated by X happening and then they knew there had to be a better way. So they went and built it. Um, there's origin stories about, I certainly know, I mean, you know, this is, this is a true story. I mean, I, when I started my first company, you know, I, um, I was right out of college, I was in my early 20s, and I had this passion and dream and obsession with being an entrepreneur uh, for a lot of reasons I won't go into now, but that makes it a longer story. But so, but, but I had no money. I mean, I literally had no money. So, you know, I was going to put, I was living off of debt, off credit cards, and I couldn't afford, I uh, couldn't afford uh, an apartment and an office. So I got the office. <laughs> I sublet <laughs> a, a, a 10 by 10 square foot room uh, uh, out of an accounting firm. They had an extra room, slightly bigger than a large closet. And I paid some small amount to them every month. And I, I would work all day to almost midnight. <laughs> and then I would uh, uh, sleep underneath my desk. I'd literally sleep underneath my desk. I would open up the file <laughs> cabinet, take out my pillow. I had no clients, so I had no files. So that's where I kept my pillow and I hid it. I would sleep under my desk and I would get up at five o'clock in the morning and leave the building before anybody came in for the day because I, I couldn't be found out that I was living in their building. <laughs> <laughs> and I would drive That's to the, the the YMCA, the local men's club, where I would um, walk in and pretend like I was going to go work out at the gym, but I never worked out. I just took a shower. So that's where I would take a shower and shave. And then I would drive back to the office and look like I was getting in early at six o'clock or 630 in the morning. And there'd be one or two people already there. Hey, good morning. And I'd go back to work. And so I mean, I was so driven that that's what I was willing to do. But one year, I did this every single day, didn't take a single day off, worked holidays, worked Saturdays, worked Sundays, living out of this office for a year. And finally, I had to give up. I had to admit that, okay, I racked up all kinds of debt. I'm no closer to having a successful business, you know, than I had a year ago. You know, I had a dream of like being you know, the next Bill Gates or Michael Dell. And I just remember looking in that, you know, YMCA half broken mirror shaving and there was no Bill Gates looking back at me. You know, it was a, it <laughs> so, was a hungry, poor, clueless young man. So even it, doing that, even living in your office, you, you weren't moving forward. No, I, I wasn't moving forward. And it goes back to, I, I, I didn't want to play nicely with others. You know, I didn't want to bring in partners. I didn't even want to bring in advisors. I thought I had it all figured out. Wow. Um, I, I paid people cheaply when uh, uh, when I wanted help. I mean, I was so young, I didn't know what I didn't know. And you only get smarter through mentors, through coaches, through partners, by hiring people smarter than yourself. But that's one of the points of the story is, is look, you know, I started with that passion. I started with sacrifice. And it wasn't enough. I mean, I'm, I might be smarter than the average bear, obviously willing to work harder than most. It's not enough. You know, it takes the old cliche. It takes teamwork to make the dream work. And I didn't know that. And it was later by adding great people to the team, getting out of their way, helping them to stay engaged at work. Boom. All of a sudden, I mean, the businesses were taking off where I was winning fast growth awards, Inc. 500 awards, best place to work awards, uh, you know, top innovative company awards. And uh, ironically, the more I, uh, you know, the bigger everything got, the less work I did. <laughs> I just just showing up being the leader guy. But back to your question, Brian. So this is an example where, you know, it became part of my origin story. My, my zero to hero story yeah, is absolutely. whether I'm recruiting people into the company or saying, hey, leader, you need to find out how to tell stories in a way that engages people. And it can be, you know, see, I'm a big believer in 
wholehearted, authentic leadership. And that means, you know, not just showing your best self. Too many people think, well, if I talk about my weaknesses, they won't respect me. You know, if I tell them I don't know the answer, they won't respect me or I won't get the next promotion. You know, I need to be a strong, uh, strong leader, positive leader, never negative. And the reality is, I mean, people see right through that. Nobody's perfect. And so to be able to tell stories about, hey, this is this is my leadership approach. This is my management approach. And here's where it comes from. And it could be something dramatic about, look, you know, I led uh, I, I, I led a team in this military conflict and here's what I learned. Or it could be, hey, you know, I played on this sports team and this is what I learned. You know, everybody's story is their own story and there's no judgment. But we all should really think hard. I mean, why do we lead the way we do? I mean, it doesn't, it's not random. Where did it come from? And to tell people our stories, this is, this is where we come from. These are my values. This is what shaped me through my career. This is what I learned from the best boss I ever had. This is what I learned from the worst boss I ever had. <laughs> and by telling those stories, yeah. people will you know, relate to you, they'll understand you, and, and you know, they'll be motivated by you as well. Oh, absolutely. And I, I bet you've told your Zero to Hero story to, um, to new team members, um, to um, teams when the chips were down or when, even when they're celebrating success. Just the way you've told that story probably to potential new customers, existing customers, right? So Exactly it, right. Yeah, and, and it, it's interesting, isn't it, because I think it's the aspect of the vulnerability, the weakness, the full 360 honesty is probably what makes that story resonate, right? Yes, it's it's that <laughs> it's that painful honesty. If you're not sharing <laughs> so much that you're squirming a little on the inside, you need to share a little more. <laughs> Brilliant. So, so okay, Kevin, it's quite easy then to draw some parallels um, between the engagement you're trying to create with uh, your team and the engagement we're trying to create as marketers with our marketing hat on with uh, new new customers. So. Um, so why is it in your experience, because uh, it's certainly like this in my experience, and maybe, maybe I've just got it wrong, but in my experience, certainly marketing departments don't tend to share and collaborate and build ideas and resources with an HR department. And, you know, so, so why is that if storytelling and leadership um, rely so heavily on, on, the same, on the same building blocks? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think, unfortunately, um, you know, too many people, you're right, they, they certainly should be sharing the same building blocks, but I think maybe too many people are, are viewing HR in, in that sort of negative process, you know, uh, definition. Um, I, and, and I think maybe the HR professionals need to, again, take some ownership of that and, and position themselves internally to being, you know, much more. But I think it's it's really valuable because, you know, the first story you're going to tell a prospective employee, you know, a recruit is is going to be, you know, the, the brand story and the value proposition of, of the company, what it's like to work in the company. But that's the fundamental building blocks where you start with your customers, you know, and people will talk about, you know, it starts it starts with why. I mean, people certainly care about your specific product and service, but they'd like to know what kind of company you are, yeah, what makes you unique, your, you know, your own values and culture and all the rest. So those building blocks should be the same. And certainly then they would, uh, they, they would diverge as you got in, you know, every product could have a story or, or story, you know, client case studies are stories and, and when they're done right. So, I mean, things can diverge, but those fundamentals should be exactly the same. Uh, absolutely, but some of the best marketing I've ever seen are brand legends about um, employees um, taking the initiative or really living and breathing the, the, the brand values, and um, you know, putting the the negative perception of an HR department to one side. Absolutely, um, you know, how can how can a people focused organization cultivate, nurture, and accelerate some of those brand legends you know to get some of the authenticity that you were you were sort of uh, intimating earlier on yeah i think oh well i mean it isn't going to happen uh, overnight with all the other priorities out there but i mean i think teaching storytelling and helping people to tell 
you know, their own story in, in a way that supports the larger story of the organization. I mean, it's something that can be, it can be taught. And I mean, I would encourage HR professionals or the branding folks or whomever to, you know, this is about celebrating wins and celebrating people and, you know, to look for those examples to celebrate. I mean, you know, this comes up a lot in the leadership stuff when it comes to company values. And, you know, too often the values are the same, you know, set of words, integrity or something like that, that gets slapped on a poster on the wall and that's that's it. And I remember um, I, I talked to the head of training at uh, Twitter, Melissa Daimler, and she told me that when new employees come in, they talk about values and present Twitter's values, but then they ask each new employee to pick the value that resonates the most with them. So there's one specific value. And then the first thing they do is they give them a, uh, a MacBook cover, you know, one of these plastic things you put on the outside of your Mac oh, yeah. that represents yeah. that value. So now everybody in the company is getting a reminder of the value and like, oh, Brian, you know, he relates most to this particular value. Just you're in a meeting, you all open your laptops. But in the orientation, you know, Brian says, oh, it's this particular value most resonates to me. Well, you're going to stand up and say why. You're going to tell a story to all the other new hires why that is. And I think, you know, this can happen throughout the company. You know, what are the, like collecting great stories around living your values? Because when values are done right, from a leadership perspective, from a business perspective, values drive decisions. Values should, when they're done right, it's really a decision-making tool. So to give people a story of, you know, okay, our values integrity. And yeah, everybody says that. And we all know, okay, you're not supposed to lie or cheat, but it's nuanced. And here's a story of a time when this particular employee had to make a decision and it was a gray zone. And you tell the story and you do a real life example of how you need to remember that integrity value as you are doing whatever, revenue recognition or supporting a client or delivering on time or not, whatever, whatever the story you know might be. But I think those can be cultivated from new hire to annual events, you know, yeah, storytelling, you know, let's absolutely. celebrate success. Let's have our people share the good news or the lessons learned through stories. And then of course, what's great is like <laughs> to use a media word, but these brand stories can be syndicated. Great. Let's write that down or shoot it on video and stick it on our recruiting page, our career center. Absolutely. You know, let's, Let's yeah. put that, you know, into our media kit. If there, if person's on the team, let's introduce them to our new client, you know, with this segment. You know, there's ways you can syndicate it right across the board. Yeah, I think that's well, that's a brilliant illustration, a great example of how storytelling can be used to reinforce um, or, or create, in some some instances, for for startups and new businesses, the brand culture that, that you're looking for. We do something similar with poker chips. We have a set of different colored poker chips. Each one represents a brand value. Um, we all, everyone carries our poker chips. And when we see somebody um, displaying that that value, they get the poker chip. And the ones with the, the, the most at the end of the month win a prize. And, you know, that's our little way of, of, of doing that. I love guess, that idea. I've had, <laughs> never heard that before. I love that. Yeah, we we just we we just made it up and and ran with it, and it works. And but it's really interesting, isn't it? Because well, I guess that's a nice story in itself. But everybody's got their own way of cultivating that culture. But I guess what you've just touched on there, using storytelling and proactively um, teasing them out, it's it's fantastic, isn't it? But. I tried to sort of touch earlier on the um, the parallels between storytelling internally and, and externally. Now, I guess there's one potential key distinction. I guess there's a line marketers have to tread very carefully in terms of they take a story and then they make it as entertaining and as engaging and as hyped as possible, dare I say it, um, in order so it resonates as much as possible with, with their audience. Do you think a leader... Um, walks the same line when communicating internally or does it need to have to be slightly more um, reserved or approached in a slightly different way or, or is it exactly the same? Uh, you know, I, I hadn't thought about the distinction in terms of the, the approach. I mean, I think that um, I, I hear what you're saying about, you know, the, the brand teams kind of punching up stories for external consumption. Yeah. I don't know that, I mean, you certainly don't need to do that for the internal storytelling, but I think great storytelling doesn't really need to be punched up. And even if you talk to, you know, great novelists or 
or uh, screenwriters, you know, some of the most compelling, not everything has to be Star Wars. Star Wars has great storytelling with all then the whiz-bang special effects, but you could also have a really compelling independent film with, you know, two people talking over dinner, my dinner with Andre, and they're still, it's just as captivating. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's more about the craft and less about the whiz bang or trying to, to puff it up. Mm, okay. That's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I would imagine we've got a split decision in terms of people listening to this, uh, because rightly or wrongly, I think some marketers have a sort of reputation for overhyping and, and we sort of, we sort of glanced past it um, earlier on, the, the sort of idea of, of authenticity. And I've had much debate with lots of different marketers around this. But how, how would you define um, authenticity to, to, to its core? And where is the well, line? What, what's the risk of overstepping? Yeah, I mean, Brian, I'm, I mean, I'm in the camp that, you know, it's, authenticity is, is what sells. I mean, I think what is, <clears throat> what's not different is, you know, we, we want to buy, you know, whether this is B2C, you know, or, or business to business or business to consumer, you know, we do want to buy from companies or people that we like, but part of that like, a big, big, big part is trust, right? We need to trust Absolutely. the company or the person we're buying from. That What's changed is that, you know, in 1950s, if we saw a soap commercial on, on TV, um, you know, 1960s, we had a lot of trust, you know, we, we, there, it was built in and there was trust because of, we were more trusting of corporations, of brands. We didn't have as many messages. This, you know, many listeners might chuckle at this, but it was before Richard Nixon. You know, I think in the United States, especially there's a big demarcation line, the way journalists treat the president of the United States and all other politicians completely changed after Richard Nixon and Watergate, right? There's no more this <laughs> deference and you're going to give you a benefit of the doubt after all you're the president. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to hold you to a higher stand. We're going to challenge you. We're going to try to, to trip you up. And so I think that we've become less trusting uh, as, a, as a society, as buyers. So anything that can increase that trust is a big win from, from a sales and marketing standpoint. So back to authenticity. I mean, authenticity is powerful because it, it breeds trust. You know, who am I going to trust? The the person who tells me they're perfect and I can tell they're not really relating to they're not really sharing their insides, their 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 emotions, their deep thoughts, or am I going to trust the person that's saying, "Here's a mistake I made and what I learned from it. Um, here's here's the day I really screwed something up. Uh, here's where we're great. Here's where we're not great. You know, we um, come by from us." But, oh, we don't have what you're looking for. You're better off going to our competitor. Wow, you might lose that sale today, but I now trust you that when you tell me something else, I don't have to wonder whether you're lying about it or not. Yeah. So, again, to me, you know, and I think you see it. That's part of why the raw media on the web, you know, if we see something that's overly produced in a video, for example, or TV commercial, et cetera, um, we automatically question it. Oh, well, you know, that's some big company with a lot of money and they, they scripted this and those are actors and they're trying to manipulate. I mean, we're much more suspicious and savvy about that. If all of a sudden some YouTuber is going crazy and it has an imperfect, you know, presentation and delivery and the lighting is a little off and, you know, there's weird jump cuts, it looks raw it feels authentic. I'm like, okay, this is a real person that I can relate to and who I trust. So if they tell me, you know, they like this product or they recommend this approach for success, whatever it is, I'm gonna I'm gonna believe them more than if it's just a straight commercial. Yeah. So it's the same same with leadership, you know, as well. You know, I think the more you can be just raw and honest without being negative, you don't want you don't want irrational. I once asked a Navy SEAL that, and, you know, he's like. I, I told I tell everything to all the team members, you know, it's a life and death situation. I tell them everything. And I said, what if you think the mission is going to go wrong? What if you're scared about it? What if what if there's some bad stuff? He said, they are trained to the point where I will tell them the pros and the cons. I will tell them the risks. But he said, I will also recognize that if I have my own emotions that are irrational, well, those I will keep to myself. So if those are just irrational emotions, 
he knew that emotions are contagious, so he's not going to share his irrational emotions, but he will say all the downside. And that's that's what leaders need to do today. You say, hey, here's what's great, but we missed our numbers. Uh, this market segment went down, and we're going to have to figure out some adjustments you know, that could be painful to get back on our feet to hit the races again next year. I mean, you can't, you can't, you know, sugarcoat it or say everything's perfect all of the time. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's, that's really, really good insight there, Kevin. There's a number of sort of things that you said there that really resonated. Um, I mean, just, just going back a couple of, of steps, actually, one of the things there about the sort of more manufactured stories that marketing departments might go down. I think we are more savvy as an audience in terms of what's authentic. The the WestJet campaign, I don't know if you saw that, the WestJet Airlines where they gave everybody a Christmas present. Um, Loved it. Amazing. Well, so do I. You're not uh, a fan? No, no. No, no. I, I love it and I think it's amazing. I think it's really good. But actually, if we just walk through some of the stuff you've just said, the WestJet Airways um, campaign was made in the marketing department it was manufactured. It's created the perception that they care about their um, passengers, but actually um, it was thought through. There was cameras there to make sure they captured it, and their number one goal was to, although they there was a charitable donation, um, which definitely um, contributed to, to its success, actually it was about brand visibility um, without a shadow of a doubt. So, so that was a manufactured campaign that was thought through and conceived. It wasn't something that was magically captured and shared. So given, given that I completely buy into everything you've just said there, I am now at a sort of, um, there's a little bit of friction in terms of why do I like WestJet and why do you like West, WestJet? Um, and given that we've just, We've just agreed that um, we're a little bit more um, skeptical when it comes to authenticity. So where is the crossroads there? Um, Where's the boundary? Yeah, well, I think that, see, I look at WestJet, and you're right. It's clearly a lot went into that campaign. Um, But from the viewer's point, what I think stands out is the authenticity of the people receiving the gifts. So clearly it was very professionally produced in a very clever and well-executed campaign. But to me, first of all, you have the story structure, right? So it's not a traditional thing where it's feature benefit, feature benefit, or, you know, buy this car and you'll look sexy or something like that. There's some story there, right? There's a beginning and a middle and an end. And and you're wondering if they're going to be able to pull it off and what's it going to be like at the end and what's going on here. So I think there's great story art going on. And then the authentic part is the people receiving the gifts. You know, these are these are people that, you know, are are showing such raw emotion, authentic emotion. And of course, it helps when, you know, we're all in the mood to cry and all that (laughs) the holiday time. Right. right. (laughs) But so to me, that was both um, effective because it told a story but the authenticity was in the people receiving the gifts. Now, whether or not, uh, you know, that hate, like I would think that for those who saw the, the, you know, 90 days after seeing that video, viewers would have a slightly better, well, one, either awareness if they never heard of WestJet or a better brand feeling, you know, brand uh, 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 reputation score, uh-huh. whether that lasts for six months or 12 months, I don't really know about that, but I would think in terms of awareness, the halo effect, I would think that that was effective because of both story and, you know, the authentic authenticity around the people receiving the gifts. Yeah. I, I can't disagree with that at all. I guess the sort of, um, the internal argument I've got is it's an authentic, uh, reaction by the passengers, yes. but it's a manufactured situation by the brand. So, <laughs> and, and Brian, you're right. Like I think those, you know, they're, they're scales of cynicism, right? So <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think there are plenty. If you look at the bell curve, there's going to be a whole lot of people who see that it's manufactured from a corporation, and they'll be like, "Oh, this is horrible." They're 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 preying on the, yeah, the sentimentality yeah, of yeah. viewers, and they're manufacturing. You know, they're they're taking advantage of a handful of people, you know, giving them trinkets so that they get all of this commercial benefit from it. Like 
look, you know, there's <laughs> there, there's those people who are so cynical or so anti the man or whatever it is. And they're right. I mean, it, you know, I get that. But I think for the for, you know, maybe half, uh, you know, half the population out there, especially around the holiday time, they view it as, oh, this is a different kind of thing and entertaining and makes me feel good at the end. You know, so this no story is going to fit for everybody, just like <laughs> no Hollywood blockbuster is going to fit for everybody. But yeah, I, I liked what uh, you said about the authentic reactions. I think that's what was really the key. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And um, that sort of leads me on nicely, actually, because one of your one of your core products or, or services, actually, that, that you uh, advertise that you offer is unlocking emotional commitment, which is sounds incredibly valuable to any organisation, whether you're addressing the marketing department, the HR department, or the CEO to make them a, a better leader. Um, given the conversation we've already had, what elements of your process? Um, have we not touched upon you know what other ingredients are, are really core to how you deliver uh, that that value to your to your customers yeah that, that's great so you know employee engagement uh is really about emotional commitment so i feel emotionally connected to my company i care about its goals that's what engagement is this emotional commitment mm -hmm. And so we did, uh, we, we looked, I mean, I think it's the world's largest study of engagement, you know, 10 million workers in 150 countries looked at who's engaged, who's not, wow. asked all kinds of questions around what's driving this feeling of engagement. And there's like 10 hot buttons you can hit, but over 70% of how we feel about our employer, about, about the company comes down to three things, growth, recognition, and trust growth Am I learning new things? Am I being challenged? Am I, you know, do I see myself getting better in the future? Recognition, do I feel appreciated? And trust isn't, I mean, it, it, the basic level is about like honest and ethics, but trust is more about a future vision. Like I trust that uh, the, the company is on the right track. I trust that our leaders will take us to a brighter future. I trust that I'm going along with them. So now here's the key though, Brian, this those three things are the triggers for feeling connected to our employer, but they're also the triggers to feeling connected with anything or anyone. So even in our personal lives, if you think about, uh, you know, early, for, <laughs> I often say this to, to people, you know, uh, who, have, who have been on a relationship for a long time, old married couples or whatever, you know, They'll often admit, like, there's that first six-month kind of honeymoon phase when you first meet and you're wooing each other and you feel totally connected and, and passionate. Well, it's because you're, you're, you're learning about each other. You're growing with each other. You're going to dinners and, and discovering restaurants together and going to the movies and talking about new things together. In terms of recognition, you're giving each other compliments. You look great. That dress looks great on you. I love your perfume. Uh, you're so good at this. Uh, trust is the future vision. Wow, we're going to have a, a wonderful home and, and three kids and we'll get a, a puppy. You know, you're, you're doing this future vision thing. Unfortunately, for many people, you know, um, you get married and you have those kids and the careers take off and life happens. And so it's 10 years, 20 years down the road. Even if you're in love, you don't quite have that connected feeling because you're not learning on a daily or weekly basis uh, anymore. You're not, you've forgotten to give those compliments. You've forgotten to bring those flowers to show appreciation. Um, uh, you sometimes forget to say, I love you as a sign of recognition and appreciation. You don't talk about the future as much anymore. So if you want to feel connected to your partner again, you need to activate these growth recognition trust triggers. If you feel like your kid is a teenager, you've got a teenage son or daughter, and you're starting to feel distance as they're growing up and hanging out with their friends more and not relating to you, well, you need to think back to when you felt great and connected with your kids. It's when you were teaching them how to throw a ball. Uh, it was when you were complimenting them on their spelling or their grades. It was talking about their future, whether it's a sports team or university. You need to go back to activating these triggers. And then Brian, going back to business, these are the triggers to get a customer 
you know, uh, uh, to feel engaged with your brand, with Absolutely. your company. You know, those, are parallels, they, those parallels are phenomenal. Absolutely yeah, that's right. Brilliant. Will your product or service help them make sure they know how they are going to grow and be better in the future by using your product and service? Make sure they know how much you appreciate them, whether that's the thank you note or the gift basket or the discount uh, for, for loyal customers, whatever that might might be. And, you know, trust when they are aligned with your brand, what does the future look like? You know, what is that future product path, service path? How are you always being an innovator? They want to work with someone that's got a bright future. They don't want to work with a company that might not be here, go out of business or be stale next year. They want to work with a company that they can trust is going to be better in the future than today. So those feelings, growth, recognition, and trust, those activate connection and commitment, whether you're trying to hire an employee, <laughs> reconnect with your lover, or you know, make your customers love you. It's really all the same stuff. Brilliant. That's such a brilliant and simple analogy, but but so true. Do you know what? I'm so glad I asked that question. I didn't anticipate such a brilliant answer because we got some real good insight there. That's great. You know, That's real good insight into how to think think about um how to emotionally connect with your, your employees, but also I got some marriage guidance counselling as well. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> sure, unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I'm definitely going to buy some flowers on, on the way home. There you go. <laughs> Never hurts. <laughs> Kevin, that's absolutely absolutely stunning. Um, so I guess to sort of start to, to, to sum up here, Kevin, um, the purpose of great storytelling, whichever department of business we're in, is to inspire growth and get efficiency and productivity and all of those things that contribute towards uh, business growth uh, and, you know, and benefit in what you're trying to achieve going forward, whatever your vision is. Um, you're working on a new book at the moment. It's coming out soon, and it's about extreme productivity, and you've interviewed some um, some of the world's millionaires and billionaires how, how did you how did you um decide to go down that route and and what are some of the insights you've learned because that sounds like a phenomenal project well brian this is the this was has been a lot of fun so uh, absolutely you know the book's called 15 secrets successful people know about time management and just as you you know this was a passion project for me because as an entrepreneur i mean again there was a time when i was young and dumb trying to do it all myself and I, I mean, I completely felt overworked, overwhelmed, overscheduled. And most most people feel that way these days. I mean, we're all trying to do more with less. I mean, the world is moving at a faster pace. We do have fewer resources. And so over time, I mean, I was always picking the brains of the highly successful, the ultra productive people I knew, you know, what were their, their tricks? Because traditional to-do lists, I mean, the to-do list uh, is a hundred-year-old technology that doesn't work anymore in this day and age. And so, but I didn't want to write a book that was just, you know, my my thoughts, my views. Um, I wanted to use this as an excuse to talk to some some of the most, you know, successful people I could think of. So, you know, I asked billionaire Mark Cuban, what's his number one, you know, piece of advice when it comes to productivity? Wow. You know, I asked the co-founders of companies like you know, Facebook and Groupon and, and uh, the game company Zynga, you know, what would be their advice to entrepreneurs and business people when it comes to time management? Um, I asked uh, Olympic athletes, some that have won, you know, a lot of medals and some that are just now training for the Rio games that are coming up. Uh, you know, how do they stay so disciplined? Um, I interviewed straight A students from places like Harvard and said, okay, how do you overcome procrastination and deal with social media distractions? Oh, that's so. Good. You know, there were over 200 of these interviews that I did, and then I boiled it all down into, uh, into, into this book. And, you know, there's, so there's a lot there, but, you know, like just one of the, one of the number one things that came out, ultra-productive people, they don't, they don't work from a to-do list. What they do is they work from their calendar. So they might still, in fact, most of them do carry around a notebook, usually a paper notebook, and they'll write down a task or if they have a project, they'll break it down into pieces, but they're not working from that to-do list because to-do lists, they don't have the time elements uh, uh, next to them. So we tend to do what's, e what's fast. You know, we, it doesn't have any, um, uh, we tend to do what's easy instead of what's important. Um, they, that one study showed that 50%, five zero, half of all the things we put on to-do lists never get done at all. You know, we just keep them there 
forever. So what ultra productive people do is they immediately put things on their calendar. Literally, they live it. They learn, I, you know, the phrase that I've come up with is they master their minutes to master their lives. Oh, you know, so they don't just say they will go to the gym on their to-do list. They're going to put it on their calendar. They don't just have um, make 50 cold calls if they're a salesperson. They're going to map that out two hours in the morning on their calendar. Um, they're really, I mean, the, the, the millionaires and billionaires, they're even scheduling time to check their email because <laughs> if they're not processing email, that email is off. They don't want to be distracted by email or Facebook. They don't have any buzzes or notifications going off. They're going to schedule time to do those things. Um, and it also means they're getting balanced because they know what's important to them. So, you know, if their family's important to them, they're going to schedule those date nights. They're going to schedule those, uh, you know, football games that their, their, their children are on. Uh, so that's, I mean, just one of the key findings. But there's all kinds of really interesting things that, that, that this group is doing that mere mortals, you know, average people uh, aren't doing. And, but that's the good news, right? I mean, it, it's not like they, they're genetically gifted or they've got a magic power. Ultra-productive people are just doing things in the mornings that average people don't do. They, they have habits that they do in the day and at night that average people don't do. And so we can all, just like any recipe or formula, we can just follow it step by step and get you know, these massive gains in productivity as well. Wow, that, 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 sounds, that sounds great. I'm not just saying that, Kevin. That sounds phenomenal. And, and what is possibly even better than that insight is the fact that um, between September 21st and October 12th, and it's uh, 2015, um, you're giving this book away for free? Yeah, this is, uh, again, this is a real passion project for mine. So, you know, if, if anybody wants the paperback anywhere in the world, you know, you could just go to 15timesecrets.com. That's the number 15timesecrets.com. And um, I'll send you a paperback copy. I mean, it's like a 340-page uh, a, a book and also instant downloads like these quick start worksheets, some online video training for productivity. I just ask people pay for the uh, the shipping of of the book, but they, if they want to pay the full price plus the shipping, they can of course go to Amazon.com or a bookstore and buy it that way as well. Wow, that's a, that's amazing. Well. My book's still uh, ten pounds or fifteen dollars on Amazon. <laughs> so, so there you go. <laughs> so, Kevin, um, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I've, I've really, really enjoyed this uh, this conversation. Before we go, um, just just once again, where can people find out more about you? Is there anything else you'd like to draw attention to or leave our audience with? Well, Brian, I've had a, a lot of fun. As you can uh, hear in my voice, your listeners will hear, I'm passionate about storytelling. I love what you're, what you're doing now, and, and it's a great service for, for your listeners. Uh, again, it's really, I mean, I, I, right now, the best way to reach me is from that website, 15timesecrets.com. But I'm online everywhere, you know, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. It's Kevin Cruz. The last name is K-R-U-S-E. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, as I said, Kevin, I can't thank you enough for your time today. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Guys, join me next week. Uh, until then, goodbye. We are out. So that's it for another week. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you did, please feel free to subscribe or even check out our Getting Goosebumps marketing book available in Amazon. If you have any specific questions, you can also tweet us using the hashtag AskPH. I'd be delighted to answer your questions. Until next week, goodbye.